Now, are you ready? Yes. I'm excited about this, and I hope you are too. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Yes. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll look at verses 1 through 6 this morning. And uh, being that it is Mother's Day, I couldn't help but think that like with the birth of a child, today we are beginning an epic journey. Yes. Something that is going to be incredible for us all. We're going to consider what many have dubbed the crown jewel of the New Testament, certainly that of the Pauline epistles. It was written by Paul and you would, uh, did I say open your Bibles? Yes. Okay. We're going to consider this morning what Paul wrote somewhere between 60 and 62 AD during his first Roman imprisonment. And Ephesians, therefore, is one of four epistles that are dubbed the prison epistles. The others are Colossians, uh, Philippians, and Philemon. And because of the absence of, in some manuscripts, the phrase in Ephesus that we'll encounter in verse 1, as well as the lack of any personal greetings or names being mentioned like in other epistles or specific issues or struggles within the church being addressed, many believe this was a circular letter to be circulated between the churches in Asia Minor that Jesus wrote to in Revelation 2 and 3. Now, let me just say this. There's a lot of commentator time spent on establishing someone's position. My position is this. It doesn't matter because this was written to the whole church. It was written to every church in every area, every area and every age of the church, including churches in Tustin, Santa Ana, and Costa Mesa. <laughs> so those are all of our stops along the way in the last 22 years. In other words, this was written to us. Amen? It is not unlikely, however, that Paul would address this specifically to the church in Ephesus because Ephesus was where he spent more time than any other city during his missionary travels. Acts verse 20 or chapter 20 verses 29 to 31 tells us, I know this, Paul speaking, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, what? Watch, pay attention. And remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with what? Tears. With tears. Paul making an emotional plea to the Ephesian elders before his departure for his Roman imprisonment. Now, because of this warning to the Ephesian elders, it would not be unusual for Paul to write a letter that is rich with doctrinal truth, as well as descriptions of Christian duty. This was a church in a city that he loved, one that he was so concerned about, he was even driven to the point of tears at his departure. Now, Paul is going to deal with four major subjects in this doctrinal treatise. The first is soteriology. That's a doctrinal term, and that's the doctrine of salvation. He's also going to deal with holiness or sanctification, the fact that Christians are set apart from what they used to be to serve God and in his power, through his power. Now, also, we're going to discover ecclesiology, which is the basic doctrine of the church when we get to chapter 4. And also chapter 6 will remind us and address the issue that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. The weapons of our warfare are not, uh, uh, we wrestle not rather against flesh and blood, and the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but we do have weapons. I guess that was a guy thing. I don't know what happened. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't have said that on Mother's Day. We, I better keep moving. <coughs> now. While rich in doctrine, this letter is not absent of practical application. Chapter 4 deals with unity. It deals with the issue of spiritual gift, gifts. Chapter 5 talks about the marriage relationship and how it represents Christ's love for the church. Chapter 6 tells us to put on some of the armor of God. Oh, put on the whole armor of God. Now, another interesting literary feature about this particular epistle is that it contains the longest sentence ever recorded in the Greek language, <laughs> secular or sacred. This is the longest sentence found in Greek literature. 
And it's found in our chapter in verses 3 to 14. And Paul strings together 202 Greek words without a period in between. Now, another spiritual point of interest is that in the midst of this long sentence, Paul also introduces the three, men, three members of the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In our study, we're going to find the phrase, in Him, 15 times. And like we were talking about on praise night, what we're going to find our minds pointed to throughout this epistle is He, Himself, He, Himself, He, Him, He, Himself. This book is about Jesus and our relationship with Him. Now, the fact that we are in him is going to identify for us a crucial, or a series of them actually, positional truths. Now, what is a positional truth? A positional truth is simply something that is eternally set in stone when it comes to our position before God. Things that will never, ever change once we place our faith in the finished work of Christ. Certain facts become true of us and for us forever. Here's an example. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if, next word, anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, do you remember all the verses that talk about new creations becoming old creations once again? Oh, no. Nope. I can't think of any either. And we also find in Acts 17.28, the first portion anyway, for in him, again, positional, we live and move and have our being until we mess up. No, listen. Next week, we're going to find that as new creations, in him, we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sins. We have the richness of his grace. We have wisdom to know the mystery of his will. In him we have obtained an inheritance, and in him we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And therefore, there's only one possible title for our opening message in this wonderful and magnificent book of Ephesians. And can you guess what it is? In him. In him. Our title this morning is In Him. Now, this, again, is going to be a journey of epic or biblical proportions, if I can use the phrase. So are you ready? Yes. All right, let's do this. Open your, open your Bible. Stand and read with me. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Ephesians 1, 1 through 6. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And Lord, we thank you for that last phrase. We thank you that it is a positional truth, that you have accepted us because of the blood of Jesus. And it, uh, Lord, we thank you it's covered all of our sins. But well, we thank you that you told your disciples as well that you wouldn't leave them as orphans, but you would send them a helper. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. Yes. We pray your spirit will give us ears to hear what you're saying to your church today from your unchanging and matchless word. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, typically I think we come to certain portions of Scripture like genealogies and just kind of blast through them and just uh, recognize they're there for historical purposes and every letter has to open with some type of greeting or salutation. But we don't want to move through this too quickly because verse 1 is worth pausing in because there are some wonderful truths there beginning with Paul identifying himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now the subject has long been debated as to who the 12th apostle was after Judas hanged himself after trade, uh, betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, we know that the other 11 had a plan, proposed it. They acted on it in Acts 1, 24 to 26, 
whether the, uh, the apostles proposed two to replace Judas, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, the debate surrounding the legitimacy of Matthias being the twelfth apostle is not in relation to the manner the eleven used to make their decision. Casting lots was nothing new. It goes all the way back to the time of Moses. And the prayer we see here was always incorporated. Lord, make your will known through this rather interesting process. At least we would see it as that today. Now we know there is significance to numbers in the Bible. We know that seven is the number of completeness. Eight is the number of new beginnings. It's associated with Jesus. We have a new beginning because we are in him. Amen. Forty is the number of judgment. Twelve is the number of human government. There were initially twelve disciples. After they were baptized in the spirit, they became the twelve apostles. Now, Revelation 21:14 will help us understand something that is going on in our day today that we need to address for our own sake and benefit and for the protection of the church. And like Paul, sometimes we need a good warning of what we ought to stay away from. Amen. Yeah. Revelation 21:14 says, "The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of what? The 12. The 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now this tells us two things. One, it tells us that Paul wasn't making it up when he introduced himself as an apostle. Or he was lying. Was he lying? No, his life says no. What God did through him says no. But it tells us the number of apostles of the Lamb is a fixed number, and it was Paul who was to replace Judas. Now, the Bible limits the number of such apostles to 12. Revelation 21 doesn't say 12 of the apostles. It says that he was the, or the 12 apostles have the names, their names written on the foundations of the new Jerusalem. Now, the reason this is important for us today is this. There are no new apostles. There's 12. Period. So if there are no new apostles, there is no new apostolic reformation. And some of you are wondering, what in the world is that? Well, just stay right there. And that's as much as you need to know. Stay away from it. <clears throat> now, here's why I think this is important. Listen to the words of Jesus and what he said to the same city Paul is writing to here. In Revelation 2, 1 to 3, in the opening letter of the seven, Jesus wrote to the churches in Asia Minor. He said to the angel of the church, where? Of Ephesus, right. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Part of his description back in chapter 1 tells us this was Jesus. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are what? Apostles. Apostles and are not, and have found them what? Liars. Liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Now listen, according to Jesus and according to Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the savage wolves that he warned the Ephesian church about were liars who claimed to be apostles. Amen. Now, here Jesus is commending the church to test those who make that claim. And there are certain criteria that Paul established to the church at Corinth that allowed him to lay claim to being apostle. One of them is seeing Jesus in resurrected form. Now, therefore, I think we recognize that all tests require questions. Questions demand answers. So for those today who are claiming to be apostles, the question they must answer is, which of the 12 did you replace? Amen. 
Nowhere do we find that in Scripture, amen? Now listen, here's the problem. The apostles save uh, Luke, who was a Gentile, who wrote Acts and obviously the Gospel of Luke. The authors of the New Testament and the Old were all Jews. And all the original apostles were Jews, obviously. God came to the Jew first and then also to the Greek or the non-Jew or the Gentiles. Now, we need to understand that God selected some for specific purposes, much like he selected the Levites. The Levites were born into office. I believe the same is true, that Jesus had a plan for these men like he had for Jeremiah before, uh, when you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. He had a plan for them. He had selected them, so to speak, for this particular time and this season. Part of their calling, part of their equipping, was to put the pen to page under inspiration of the Spirit and write the scriptures that we study, including this. Now, here's the problem. Because they have divine authority to write scripture, and even this new movement acknowledges that the canon of scripture is closed. We do not add to the Bible. Hello? We do not add to the Bible. So what the claim of the new apostolic reformation is today is that because this new group of apostles are equal to the apostles of the word of God who pen the word of God, their spoken word is equal to the written word. Is that a problem? Yes. Absolutely. And I think Jesus was pretty clear about how he felt about such a group in his letter to the church at Ephesus in Revelation. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about this as we get to chapter uh, 4 sometime in 2022. <laughs> but listen, they opened with this, or the Spirit opened uh, with this and told Paul to write this first. So we covered it first. Okay. There are no new apostles. Amen. 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 Now, according to... Jesus, those who appoint each other as apostles, are liars. Yeah. Who's the father of lies? Satan. Satan. Do we follow people who are being led by Satan? No. no, I don't think that's a good idea. Now, having identified himself as an apostle according to the will of God, and therefore the author of the letter, the recipients are then named as the saints in Ephesus. Now, the word saint in the Greek is the word hagios, and it means holy ones, or set-apart ones, or sanctified ones, or even morally clean ones. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul told the church at Corinth, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Here's another positional truth. What? In him. So in Christ is how we become righteous. You can't become righteous on your own. You have to be in Christ. Amen. You can't be morally good enough to get into heaven. You have to be in Christ to get in. Amen. Now, this is a positional truth. We become the righteousness of God in him, the one who knew no sin, which is obviously Jesus. Now, Paul then adds the practical or the personal aspect of being a saint or someone made holy where he describes saints as those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, here's where we need to pause and make a point, and we'll explain it. We'll establish it and then dissect it a bit. Listen this morning. Here's the first of our many points we'll draw from the book of Ephesians. Here we go. All who are in him will seek to be like him. Yes. All who are in him will seek to be like him. And listen this morning. All the word of God is of equal status. Yep. Hello? All the word of God is of equal status. It's all divinely inspired. And if Jesus didn't say it, the Holy Spirit did. Amen. And they're both God, right? Yes. So listen, somebody tells you, listen, if Paul said it, you have to take it with a grain of salt. You have to take it as though it's the words of a human being. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. All scripture is profitable. Listen, we don't let the culture of the day tell us what's right and wrong in the Bible. It's all written by God. And if somebody tells you only read the red letters, 
You just tell them, you know, the ancient manuscripts didn't have any red letters. So how, how am I supposed to know which are red and which are not? Besides the fact that all of them need to be red. Amen? Now, see, this is important because if Jesus didn't say it, the Holy Spirit did. And if Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, James, or Jude held the pen, the Holy Spirit still is responsible for the content. And yet we have people today who say, I'm in him, but I don't agree with all of his word. We have people today who say, I'm in him, but I don't believe you have to live the way the Bible says you ought to live. We have people today who say, you know, I, I, I'm in him, but I think the Bible's outdated. Well, listen, that's like saying you're in him, but you're nothing like him. And you, anybody who's in him is going to seek to be like him. Amen. How are we going to find out what he's like? except through his word. Amen. Now, John the Beloved said in 1 John 3, 1 to 3, Beloved, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be like. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. I don't know how you're still in your chair and not <laughs> jumping up and down shouting hallelujah or something. Listen, and everyone, say everyone. everyone. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself, herself, just as he is pure. Do you know what the Greek word for pure is? Hognos. It's the root of the word for saint. Every saint purifies himself just as he is pure. This is practical Christianity. Now, I'm glad we're in Ephesians because we get a chance to clean up a lot of the mess out there that's being taught. And there's some goofy things being taught out there, right? And listen, the saints in Ephesus and everywhere at all seasons of the history are described here as faithful we need to be faithful, and that word means believing. And what is the object of our belief? The object of our belief is Jesus Christ. We are in him. We place our hope in him. We place our trust in him. And Jesus is the word. Yes. So how can you say you're in him, but you disagree with his word when he is the word? Amen. Now, listen. All who are faithful to him believe his word. They don't deny it. They don't amend it. They don't disparage it. They don't doubt it. They believe it. All of it. Listen. Yes. Even the parts they have a hard time living up to. That's right. That's they still right. agree with it. Nobody says, I feel this. I believe that. So I disagree with the Bible. People who are born again, people who are filled with the Spirit say, I feel this. I struggle with that. But the Bible's right. And where I disagree with it, I'm the one that's wrong. And Lord, help me with my unbelief. Help me with my lack of faithfulness. Now, let's move on. And we're going to be in Ephesians 1 until the rapture. <laughs> we may be anyway. I hope he comes today, don't you? Yes. Now, let's look again at 2 and 3. Grace to you and peace from, the God, from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, where? In who? In Christ. Now, Paul moves to the source of our position in him, and that is God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, from whom grace and peace come. Now, it's a subtlety, but I think it's worth noting and reminding uh, all of us, that Paul marries together a traditional Greek greeting of charis or grace to you with the traditional Hebrew greeting of peace or shalom. Now, we need to recognize that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, so there is no violation of culture to marry these two greetings together. Whosoever will may come. Amen? It's only by God's grace that we can have peace because it's only by God's grace that we can become his children. Now, something we need to highlight for our understanding is that referring to God as father is not exclusive to the New Testament, but that phrase is only found nine times in all of the Old Testament, and it's found hundreds of times 
in the new. Now, why is that important? It's important because it tells us we need to be thankful for the positional truth that we are in him. And because Christ is his son and we are in Christ, we are therefore his children and joint heirs with him. Now, for these believers, these sacred promises of grace and peace had already been actualized. They already have God's grace. They already have divine peace in their lives. And this is what's known in doctrinal or theological circles as inaugurated eschatology. In other words, the early church believed that the, the future had already begun. Their future in Christ had already begun. And what that simply means is they believed they had eternal life already. Yeah. Now, there was a transition that was going to happen. I think our trans uh, uh, transition is going to happen in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. I hope others made that transition through death, but they still live forever. Listen, everybody lives forever. And what you do with Jesus determines the address. Now... With that in mind, we come to the longest sentence in Greek literature at verse 3, where the manifestation of grace and peace are described as having been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, again positional, in Christ. Now, Peter addressed the same benefit of being in him in 2 Peter 1, 1-4. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith. Put that away in your mind. With us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us what? All things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through what? Lust. Lust, remember, means longing for forbidden things. Now, we could spend a great deal of time, the rest of our time, actually, dissecting what Peter says here. But one thing I want to draw our attention to is that Peter identifies those who have the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus as having like precious faith. In other words, the faith of the apostles is the same faith that you and I have. And therefore, all the elements of it will be the same as well. There is no new understanding of Scripture. There is no new application of Scripture. There is no new understanding of how to be saved, how the saved should live, or what the saved believe. We have the like precious faith of those who penned the Scriptures physically inspired by the Spirit. Now, for our time this morning, we need to focus on the fact that through these exceedingly great and precious promises of God, we are partakers of the divine nature. Isn't that an awesome phrase? Partakers of the divine nature, blessed with every spiritual blessing. Now, we've noted a few times recently that the, the spiritual blessings of God are far more beneficial than the material. Did you guys go to lunch? The spiritual blessings of God are far more beneficial than the material. Do you know why that is? That's because material blessings are material. They're from this material or temporal world. And therefore they are subject to change. But the Lord and his blessings do not change because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Colossians 1, 9 to 12. Paul would write this. For this reason we also... Since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. light. Now from his imprisonment in Rome, 
Paul would remind the Colossians of the same truths that he wrote to the Ephesians. Because what was true for one group of saints in the realm of spiritual blessings is true for all saints in every age of church history. And here Paul identifies through his prayer some of the spiritual blessings we have in heavenly places. One, we have knowledge of God's will. We have wisdom and spiritual discernment or understanding. In him we've been blessed with walking worthy and pleasing to the Lord. We've been blessed with being fruitful in every good work. We've been supernaturally strengthened with all might according to God's glorious power. He's even given us patience. I'm still looking for that one, but he, he, he said he's given it to us so we can be patient, right? He's allowed us to be long-suffering. He's given us kindness and thankfulness. Now listen, this list keeps going as you keep reading different epistles because Philippians says what else we've received is a peace that passes understanding. First Corinthians adds spiritual gifts to that list. James talks about us being blessed with the power to pray like Elijah did. First John says we have confidence at his coming. Hebrews says we have an anchor for our soul. Galatians said we've been made free. Titus says we have all authority. And Romans says we walk in newness of life. These are all yours already. Now I think you get the point. We've been blessed. Amen? Amen. So here's our tongue-in-cheek second point, and we'll talk about it after I give it to you. Listen this morning. We don't need to ask for what we already have. We don't need to ask for what we already have. Think about the list we just ran through in our petitions to God. Oh, Lord, I need your peace. Gave it to you. I already gave it to you. Lord, I need your strength. Gave you that too. Lord, I need power. Already done. You've got the power to be witnesses. Now listen, what we need to note is this. In Luke 17, 5 to 6, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it, a tree, would obey you. The apostles didn't say, give us faith. They already had it. They said, increase what we already have. Jesus said, let's get this straight. A tiny bit of faith the size of a mustard seed, because the object of your faith is me, is mighty enough to take the deep-rooted mulberry tree, give it a command, and it would have to obey you. This was a cultural application that they would all understand. And for you and I, we need to understand that the object of our faith is what's important. Faith is not a power in and of itself. It's believing that God is who he says he is, Jesus is who he says he is, and he does what he says he does. And if we believe those things, it's going to impact how we live, and that will be an expression of our faith. Now listen, Romans 12, 6-8 says, Having then differing gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, does it say going to be given? No. Already given. The grace that is given to us, let us use them, pointing back to the gifts. And then Paul says, if prophecy, let us prophesy, speaking by divine inspiration. Prophesy in proportion to our faith. faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Hebrews 5.14 says, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now listen, the apostles were asking for what they already had. And the answer seems to imply that they weren't using it. And Paul tells the Romans that since we all have gifts, let us use them. And Hebrews reinforces the point that exercising our gifts increases their effectiveness. Yes. And the truth is, this is how you get more of what you've already been given. Yes. Use your gifts by faith and your faith will increase. And whatever you are in need of will be supplied in proportion to what you are attempting. And listen, I'm not saying the Bible prohibits asking for more of the things we already have. There's times when we need more strength. There's times when we need more power. 
there's times where we need a supernatural peace well beyond anything we may have had or experienced before. But listen, here's the point of all this. Let's make sure that we are asking for those things to bring God glory and not just asking for them so we can have the experience of seeing God do something radical. He does radical stuff, right? Yes, I mean, don't we all want to see the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear? We all want to see that stuff, right? Shouldn't we want to see people come to Jesus more? Isn't that why we've received the power of the Holy Spirit? To be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and even to the end of the earth. And listen, we've already been given every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. We've already received all things pertaining to life and godliness. So if the flow seems to be hindered, the problem's on our end, yes. not his. Yes. He's already done the giving. We need to use it to increase our receiving. Yes. Amen? Yes. Now, let's move along to uh, these final three verses and see if we can cause some trouble. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him. Say it. In love. Just remember that as we move forward. <laughs> Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Now, the content of these verses and some others we'll talk about in a moment have stirred major debate and division in the church for over five centuries. And we could spend an entire service or two or five or 11 talking about the issue of election. But we're not going to. Because the truth is five centuries of debate has been wasted time. Because Let me just say this this morning. Are you ready? Buckle up. Here we go. Listen, I'm not trying to convert people to Jacobus Arminius. I'm trying to lead people to Jesus Christ. And if you're preaching John Calvin, you're preaching the wrong JC, you need to be preaching Jesus Christ and not John Calvin. Amen? Listen, the issue is not that complex. And it's certainly not worth fighting over. Listen, if you think you can come of your own free will, or if you think God's Spirit is a tractor beam that draws you in, that's not the question. The question is, have you been born again? That's the question. So listen, let's just jump in with both feet, all right? Does the Bible teach predestination? Yeah, we just read it, right? Does the Bible teach man has free will? Yes, it does. Are there people predestined for hell who couldn't be saved even if they wanted to be? No. Are there people predestined for heaven who will wind up there no matter what they do? No. The key to understanding this centuries-old debate is our title, In Him. You're either in Him or you're not in Him. And if you're in Him, you're going to heaven. And if you're not in Him, you're going to? Oh, that was really quiet. I figured it'd be... It's in the Bible. You can say it. Now, listen, what our verses tell us is that God predetermined before the foundation of the world that those whom he would save would be those in Christ. That was his predetermination. This was according to the good pleasure of his will by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Now listen, Romans 8, 29 to 30. We're going to do some housekeeping here. You ready? For whom he, what? For whom he, what? Foreknew. Where does this whole process begin? Foreknowledge. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn, he being his son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. There's a progression that is recorded here that starts with foreknowledge. And in 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the, what? 
foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. John the Beloved would say, my little children, 1 John 2, 1 and 2, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for all the elect. The whole world. Is that what it says? The whole world. You know what the whole world means in the Greek? The whole world. The whole world. <laughs> Listen, the Bible teaches, say the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches, the Bible teaches that Christ died for sinners and saints. Yeah. And God sent his spirit to convict the sinner of his sin, according to Jesus in John 16, 8. Yet only believers are identified as the elect. Yeah. So how do we find balance between these two positions that have caused the rage within the church for nearly half a millennia? Those who say God elected some for heaven and others for hell, and those who say whosoever will may come and be saved. Well, the answer is foreknowledge which is distinct from predestination. Those whom God foreknew are those that he predestined. Yes. And God knew who would respond to the Holy... He's God, come on. Yes. He's God, he knows everything. Yes. And those whom he foreknew would respond to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. He chose them for the destination of being conformed into the image of his Son. And the destination of predestination is just that, to be like the one who we are in. Amen. We are in him. The Bible teaches God's elect will and human choice work together. I love what Spurgeon said when asked, how do you reconcile free will and predestination? And Spurgeon said, you don't need to reconcile friends. The Bible teaches both, right? right? So let's stop the fighting. Yeah. Let's worry about the lost and perishing. Yeah. And you don't have to worry, if I throw the net out, what if somebody gets in that's not elect? <laughs> I mean, that's the argument. Oh my gosh. Come on. You know, we shouldn't be misleading people. If they're not elect before the foundation of the world, and we tell them about Jesus and they think they're saved, but they're really not elected before the foundation. I mean, come on, give me a break. Well, first of all, I think the Father knows how to lead you by His Spirit to the right people, right? Now, we need to understand that God is foremost in the whole process and progression. So let's get to our point now that we've started debates all over social media. And I'm looking forward <laughs> to all the names I'll be called at the end of this service. So, not by you. Now, listen. Look at the marvelous terms used in these verses to describe our position of being in him. We're holy. Jesus told his disciples, you're already clean. I've already declared your righteousness by believing me, just like righteousness was imputed to Abraham. We're told we're without blame. I like that phrase because it means a couple of things. It means without glaring defect. And it can also mean having overcome basic sins. Just the things that cause people to struggle and stumble and identify us as sinners. We've all sinned, Amen. fallen short of the glory of God. Amen. Yeah. We're also told we're before him in love. We're told that because we're before him in love, we've been adopted and thus are heirs with Jesus, which is the good pleasure of his will, his glory, his grace made us accepted in the beloved. Now, now that we've got everybody riled up, Let's close with something awesome and amazing. You ready? Okay. Listen, here's the last thing we need to consider this morning. Once we are in him, no one can take us from him. Yeah. Once we are in him, no one can take us from him. I can't even tell you how many times I've been asked if I'm an Arminiist or a Calvinist. I say, no, I'm a staunch Calvinist. <laughs> I think they're both partially wrong and they're both partially right. And I do believe that once the Father gets a hold of you, nobody's going to take you out of his hand. I believe that we are eternally secure. I do not believe that that means you can live like hell and still go to heaven. I think it means that once he saves you, you're going to live like you're going where you're going. Now, we are accepted in the beloved. 
We are adopted as children of the king and thus join heirs with Christ. And this is the good pleasure of his will. Jesus said in John 10, 27 to 30, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life temporarily. And they shall never perish. Never means never. never. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then Jesus said something that raised a ruckus with the scribes and the Pharisees. I and my Father are one. Can you have temporary eternal life? No. Does the Bible teach that God saved you as a sinner but kicks you out of the family if you sin after you're saved? No. no. What the Bible does teach clearly is that it's possible to think you're saved That's right. and not be. Right. Now, there's something that just kind of stuck in my mind during first service this morning, and that was when Jesus ended the greatest sermon ever preached, that being the Sermon on the Mount, he ended it like this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's the thing. He, he said to them, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. But what was their argument to him? Look at all the stuff we did in your name. We did all the things that people like to see. We prophesied, cast out demons. We did all the sensational stuff. They say nothing about their doctrine. They say nothing about their teaching. They say nothing about the basics of the Christian faith. All they said was, we did all this stuff. In essence, Jesus is saying, you put on a show. And that's why we need to stay away from groups that say, we're the new apostles. Because if you look at what's happening inside their buildings... It's all the same stuff that Jesus said, that doesn't mean anything. You're using my name as exploitation. And listen, we need to be careful about these things to be sure, because that's what the real danger is, to teach a false message and give false hope, not just throwing the net out to somebody who wasn't elect. And in Romans 6, 1 to 4, Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk out in newness of life. Now, I think it's interesting that in the day in which we live, truth is defined by popularity instead of fact. If people believe it, it must be true. If people feel it or sense it or think it, it has to be true because people feel, sense, and think it. And therefore, facts in our day are irrelevant. And we see people believing and proclaiming and promoting just ridiculous things in our day today, because stating the truth is not popular. Well, this what I'm about to say is not popular today, but it is true. And what that is, is this. If there's been no change in your life, there's been no change in your eternal destiny. If there's been no change in your life, there's been no change in your eternal destiny. What is Paul saying here? Because we died in Christ, because we are in him, we died too, and we are resurrected as new creations, and therefore we should walk in newness of life. We're not the same after we come to Jesus. Well, I, I thought that was a little more exciting than that myself. We're not the same after we come to Jesus. And yes, knowing Jesus changes us positionally, we're accepted in the beloved. But practically, we walk in newness of life. So a lot of these isms that are floating around today stop at the positional and never get to the practical. The newness of life is responsibility. The newness of life is reacting to what God has done in you. And listen, personally, I don't believe that God elects some for heaven and others for hell. I believe that he's unwilling that any should perish, but all will come to repentance. That's what the Bible says. And I believe that those who do come, come of their own free will. And as they come of their own free will, they become God's elect, predestined to conformity into the image of Christ. 
And that process begins in this life. And for us, I think it ends in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And I hope that happens today. And I hope we are all here today accepted in the beloved. And if you aren't, you can be. And all you have to do is recognize what the Lord has done for you. I've always found it uh, interesting. Remember in uh, Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, 173,880 days after it was predicted, he would ride into town and receive public worship and praise for the very first time. The cry of the people was, Hosanna, save now. Save now, right now, save now. He's here, save now. Well, guess what? He's here today. And he can save now. Now, in order to be saved, you need to pray a 12-paragraph King James prayer. No, you know what you need to do? Save now. Save me right now. Right here. Save me. Save my soul. That's the business he's in. And that's what his word does. We've looked at his word today. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the... We study the word of God today. So saving faith is available to you if you don't know that you are accepted in the beloved. Now listen, as I've said before, a lot of things that the church practices today, and there's nothing wrong with them, have no problem with a public invitation, walking before, standing before a platform, going down on a field, raising your hand. I got no problem with any of those things, and nobody else should either. But like I've said before, I kind of lean to the Spurgeon methodology, where he would just say, you know what? If you accepted Christ today, show up in my office on Monday. And when asked about that practice, he said, listen, if God did something legitimate, it's going to last a day. And it'll be true on Monday, not just on Sunday. And it won't be proven by walking down the aisle lifting a hand. So listen, if you want to be saved and know that after you die, you're going to go to heaven, just say, I'm a sinner, save me now. Doesn't have to get any more complex than that, right? Because Jesus died for you. You are a sinner. Well, the yeahs are getting weaker by the moment. <laughs> Jesus died for you. Yeah, you are a sinner. Whatever. We are sinners, right? And we need a Savior, and God only supplied one, and his name is Jesus, and you need to be in him if you're not. Amen? So just say, save me now. Father, we are grateful for our time together today. Thank you for this incredible, incredible book. And Lord, we thank you for taking a man like Paul who was killing Christians, imprisoning Christians, thinking he was serving you. And yet you took this misguided but intelligent individual and said, I can use you. So we thank you, Lord. You saved to the uttermost, to the outskirts even of humanity. There's none too far from you that they can't be saved. We thank you that the access is available for us all. You died for the sins of the whole world. So I pray if there are any here today who don't know you, that they would cry out to you to save them now. And I know you will. We bless your holy name today. We thank you for all the mothers today. Lord, I want to pray specifically for those who are missing mom today, maybe those who are spending their first Mother's Day without their mother. I just pray you would comfort them and strengthen them. And we thank you, Lord, for this wonderful time together in your word. We celebrate you. We acknowledge you. We revere you. We adore you. We love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.